the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. The chemical used in household cleaners smells foul and is toxic, but its energy density by volume is nearly double that of liquid hydrogen, its primary competitor as a green alternative fuel. It's also easier to ship and distribute. This week we are talking ammonia, one nitrogen atom bonded with three hydrogen atoms. That's NH3 for the chemists among you. This is the fuel that many hope can launch shipping into a zero-carbon future, and it's garnered a lot of attention and scrutiny over the past couple of years as a result. For some, ammonia is the fuel of the future. Joining the Lloyd's List podcast this week to make the case for ammonia are Milton Bevington and Stephen Crolius of Carbon Neutral Consulting. This is the outfit that recently published a report arguing that companies within the maritime sector should make ammonia a key part of their future business strategy. It's going to help them adapt to the energy transition. Our sustainability editor, Anastasios Adamopoulos, spoke with them about why they've singled out ammonia and what shipping should look to learn from other businesses where ammonia use is prevalent. So, Stephen, I'll start with you. I guess it's uh, interesting for us to know why you chose ammonia. Uh, Why not a different zero carbon fuel? Why is it this one that companies operating in the shipping industry should incorporate in their business strategies? Right. Uh, So we did choose ammonia, but the process of choosing ammonia started 10 years ago back when Milton and I were employed at the Clinton Climate Initiative. And one of the assignments we were given was the hydrogen economy. Uh, what's in the way? Why? Wh- what do we need to do to get the hydrogen economy implemented? What's it going to take to get it rolling? And uh, we dove into that question, uh, did a lot of interviews um, with a lot of scientists and a lot of University, some of the national laboratories in, in, in the U.S., number of companies. And we learned that there's a theory of hydrogen, which is that it's clean and simple. You make hydrogen and then you, then you process it through an energy device. You burn it or whatever, or through a fuel, fuel cell. And all you have that comes out on the other side is water. What a wonderful thing. But when you actually have to make hydrogen work, it is problematic in lots of different ways, starting with you either cool it so it can be or or compress it so it can be managed as a gas, but then you have a, a, a quite a small quantity of hydrogen in quite a heavy tank. And if you have to move that around the world, it's very expensive. The alternative is to liquefy it. And now you're talking about minus 253 degrees Celsius. That is very, very, very cold. And um, and that creates a whole raft of other issues. And then there are, I can go on about the issues of hydrogen, but there, it's not just that it's cryogenic, there are others. And while we were doing this research, someone suggested, have you looked at ammonia? And I have a background in chemistry. And so I, uh, it was the first I'd heard of it. Heard of it. it was seemed very strange. But when I thought about it, I said, oh, wait a minute, ammonia, NH3, one nitrogen, three hydrogen atoms. That's very similar to methane, CH4, one carbon, four hydrogen atoms. I said, hmm, 
maybe there's something here. And from that point to the present, you know, we keep looking for uh, some fatal flaw or significant drawback that would say, oh, oh, well, of course that won't work. We've never found it. And now, you know, we have, there, there's a, as you know, there's a very large uh, movement now um, across multiple industries, hundreds of companies to, to embrace the ammonia energy economy. So, you know, I, I started back at the Clinton Climate Initiative. Of course, in the interim, the Ammonia Energy Association has come on as a very vibrant industry association. And um, Trevor Brown, one of the co-authors of the report, and I are actively associated with the Ammonia Energy Association. So we brought all of this background and, and, and knowledge about ammonia energy to the challenges that the maritime sector is facing. And um, we brought all of the comparative work that we and others have done, techno-economic analysis that we and others have done of how would this work, how would a, a hydrogen energy economy that's uh, enabled by ammonia, how would that how would that work? Critically, what is the cost profile when you arrive at a, a fuel that will comply with, for example, the GHG mandate of 2050 per the IMO? What are going to be the cost positions of the candidates that uh, would enter the, the field at, at that at that point? And um, we're not today saying that ammonia has won and it will be the cost leader in 2050. No one can say that. Um, all anyone can do is look at the characteristics and factors that will influence relative cost position and say, wow, ammonia actually has a pretty good shot here to be the cost leader. And so that's why um, we're saying that um, this is worthy of the attention of, of the maritime sector, in fact, not not at a big macro level, but company by company, individual companies should really have this ammonia idea in in mind and start to do some strategic thinking around it. Milton, did I did I uh, kind of capture that in a useful way? Of course you did. You always do. Um, but just to add a little color to that, I, I didn't think to go that back that far back in our history, Steve, but I can very well remember the first the first person to ever introduce this idea to me was you. And he said, no, I'm going to run something by you. I don't think you're going to really understand at first, but I'm going to try to convince you. And he, you know, he, he just said, ammonia is a fuel. And I went, huh? <laughs> and uh, by the way, today, I mean, everybody on this call is surrounded by mentions of ammonia as a maritime fuel. You got to remember that years ago, you know, ammonia had something to do with fertilizer. That's all anybody knew about it. And so to be having a conversation about it as a, as a fuel, particularly as a fuel that just might become a, you know, a huge uh, energy commodity was way out of bounds. Um, so I had to be convinced too. Now, by the way, my background is finance. The, the project I was working on immediately before I got involved with Steve and Trevor was designing green bonds for municipalities to uh, finance large-scale upgrades to their infrastructure. And this is climate finance and resiliency finance, okay? But I deal in the world of, of real investors who want real returns on safe, on safe investments, okay? 
So I'm not I'm not usually very interested in pie in the sky uh, stuff. So Steve had his work cut out for me to convince me that this was actually going to be viable going forth. And I, I got to say, I came to the exact same conclusion. I kept looking for the for the fatal flaw in the idea. And after after researching it now thoroughly, I can't find it. <laughs> okay, so that's kind of a short answer. That the reason the reason ammonia has kind of risen to the top is that nobody's been, we haven't been able to knock it out of its position. There's just not a thing that says, no, there's just a reason why nobody's going to buy into this. And, and again, I look at it from the standpoint, not from the technical standpoint so much as, is an investor going to invest in a, you know, in a propulsion system or a vessel or an in, a bunkering infrastructure? And I look at it all and I go, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's money to be made in this. And they have alternatives, of course. They can invest over here and over there and so forth. But ultimately, uh, one of the things, you know, boiling it down to like one thing uh, that really kind of captured me is that uh, ammonia has a unique virtue, okay? When you look at what it can do today, okay, when you look at what on an on a energy equivalent price basis, what ammonia costs, which you can buy anywhere in the world practically, as it compares to, say, MGO or a very low sulfur content fuel, it's comparable. <laughs> now, we're waiting on the propulsion systems to use it in, okay, I admit, but there's no reason why today's costs are out of line. It can be, it can be substituted for a cost basis uh, readily once the propulsion systems are available. But that doesn't make it unique. LNG fills that build. MGO fills that build. Very low sulfur can, can fill it. Okay, what makes ammonia unique is it is both a transition fuel and a long-term solution. So any investment you make, and I, again, I think of this from the standpoint of the investor who doesn't want his 30-year investment to be stranded after 20 years. Any investment you make in this is going to be a, a long-term long good deal, okay? It'll be a good deal in the short term, and it'll be a good deal in the long term. And that is really attractive to investors. So I said, okay, great. It's a great fuel. It does what it's supposed to do. But you know what? It's also a great investment. And that kind of cinched it for me. Yeah, a lot of um, compelling arguments. You know, one of, one of the factors that you guys also looked at, but which of course is going to be important for all fuels really, is the regulatory trajectory. With the, the kind of regulatory landscape today, how easy is it to incorporate a fuel like ammonia in you know your your strategy and your future plans given that you don't necessarily know how things are going to be three years from now in terms of of targets and and commitments well we know that there's thinking going on inside the imo and the class societies a lot of thinking in the class societies about getting the sector ready for ammonia as a possible bunker fuel. And that's great, but that's just preparatory. What's to me, what is critical here is that the IMO has put forth a roadmap over the next 30 years and indeed through the rest of the century to, to arrive at a, a point of um, zero greenhouse gas emissions. And as that roadmap, as we travel along that roadmap, there will be either an implicit or explicit price on the emission of carbon, carbon dioxide. 
And once you are in that kind of uh, framework, uh, then the economics of your solution become everything. Of course, your solution has to be compliant and what compliance means is going to evolve as we travel along the IMO roadmap. But at any given point, the company that has the lowest cost compliant solution is going to have an advantage in its industry and is going to translate, be able to translate that advantage into market share growth and enhanced profitability. And um, so that puts a real, uh, you know, imperative on all the companies in all of the industries in the maritime sector to um, look at this challenge that we are now at the early end of confronting through that lens of competitive cost position. What will be my cost position given capital investments that I might make and operating cost, operating cost profile that, that I will have as a result? How will that compare with, with uh, my rivals in whatever my industry is? And that's why this sort of regulatory landscape um, is a you know, central part of our whole focus on ammonia here. It creates that economic framework in which the uh, cost advantages that ammonia could create will that that framework that will sort of bring those to the to the, to bear and make make it you know any cost advantage that that you're able to achieve um, make that really take hold and and become important. Milton, do you see regulations playing that same role? Well. Yeah, Steve describes it as if uh, pressure, they create pressure on businesses to think in certain ways. Again, because we have, uh, I have a different, slightly different background, I, I kind of think of, uh, I think of it as a risk management issue. Everybody in a business is managing risk, whether you're an investor or whether you're an operating company or whatever, you're managing risk. And Managing risk in very uncertain times is the most difficult risk to manage <laughs> because you don't have a lot of information. What you what the regulatory environment does is it creates risk, and you have to pay attention to risk if you're in business. Okay, it's not a technical. The technical aspects of business, um, you know, keeping the books and that kind of stuff is pretty. You don't have to be the smartest guy in the world to do that kind of stuff, but you have to have a talent for risk management to be successful in a very fast-moving, fluid, uncertain environment with a lot of unknowns. And the regulatory thing creates that. By the way, it's, it's interesting to speculate, well, will they do this or will they do that? You know, the fact that they might do something and we don't know what they will do creates the risk. It's not the actual regulation itself. You know, they create a vision. Will the sovereigns actually codify that in their laws? Okay, will ports start adding surcharges to to fuels? Or will ports stop allowing uh, non-compliant of ships into their port? Will they come out and find them? Uh, you know, write them a ticket and make them pay a big fine. These are, you don't, you don't have to know exactly what's going to happen to know that the environment is now riskier <laughs> than it used to be and that you're going to have to react to it. So I believe I come to the same conclusion that Steve does, just but by a different mean, by a different method. 
We have a, a tremendous amount of uncertainty that did not exist 50 years ago. I mean, you, you know, um, the last time I think the, the, the shipping industry had to confront something like this was, let's say, from the transition from coal to diesel fuel was one. And then the, uh, the, the transition to containerized shipping. OK, there was another one where a lot of people, I mean, the stevedores in particular, kind of were holding on to the old way of doing things for a long time. But companies who, were, who became successful confronted the risk and managed it very, very well. And I think that is the impact that the regulatory environment is having on the industry right now. You mentioned risk, of course, which is a major part. I think when we talk about ammonia in the shipping industry and you talk about risks and uncertainties, I think a lot of people still have the element of safety and the general lack of familiarity in terms of of handling the fuel as a potential prohibitive of course ammonia is not a, is not a new substance it's used uh, in many other functions outside of, of being you know a, a potential shipping fuel so given what you guys know about its its use in non for non-maritime purposes basically what can this industry take from functions of ammonia elsewhere and how can it apply them here so um, I don't advertise this too much, but I, my original training was engineering. It was heating, ventilating, and air conditioning, which is refrigeration. Refrigeration has been one of the one of the longest time uses of ammonia for years. We have been. I was in a little business years ago that rebuilt compressors. We rebuilt ammonia compressors in our little factory, and there are ammonia refrigerant systems all over the world. They're in ports. They're refrigerated warehouses. They're in grocery stores, in densely populated, every densely populated uh, area of the world has grocery stores in it, and many of them were going to have uh, ammonia refrigerant in their refrigeration systems. As uh, my colleague Trevor very eloquently um, states, by the way, his family also came out of uh, a refrigeration background, so he also has this personal experience with these things. But as he often says, the, uh, the difficulty here is not knowing what to do. It's teaching the people who need to know it what we already know, okay? And because ammonia has not been a, a maritime bunker fuel, there are not a lot of, there, there are not a tremendous number of people in the industry who know all of the details on how to handle it, okay? And there's a lot of details, as with any, as with any uh, hazardous substance of any kind. Uh, all fuels are hazardous if they're not handled properly. So the real issue is the knowledge gap and how to close the gap. And uh, when you look at the announce, the most recent announcements, I believe the first, uh, the first large-scale ship on the water that's going to be ammonia-powered is going to be an ammonia tanker. Well, that's an interesting place to start because the guys who handle ammonia for a living know how to handle ammonia. <laughs> you know, it's their business. They've been pouring it into the cargo bays <laughs> of their of these ships for a while, and they've been bunkering with, you know, IFO 380. But when this first uh, vessel uh, hits the water, they're simply going to be putting ammonia in the, you know, in the fuel tank as, as well as in the cargo. And they know that they understand the procedures, okay? They understand what, how to respect ammonia. 
those people are going to be the first ones to use it. And guess what? They're going to start teaching more people how to use it. As time goes on, those very same people who already have this knowledge are going to teach. Well, the classification societies have to get involved in here, too. I mean, I don't whether you're a classification society expert in this and safety or whether you're an energy analyst assessing the um, long term market viability of ammonia as a fuel and what the cost might be, you don't probably have a lot of experience in this because why would you? <laughs> it's never been an issue. So this learning process is going to take place industry-wide, sector-wide. The classification societies are going to have to go and learn it. The energy analysts are going to have to go and learn about what used to be an agricultural commodity. I mean, some, some other guy in another department covered it. They didn't. And the same thing's true of safety. Um, but the comforting thing is that the knowledge is there uh, already, and there are people who have it. And we're not trying to get this done in one year or two years or three years. You know, we, 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 have a, a, we have a decade, you know, we have this decade, perhaps, is one way of thinking of it. And that's enough time to close the knowledge gap. Uh, so in terms of uh, uh, lessons that shipping can learn from other industries, um, certainly the hazard management lesson is very important and uh, Milton did an excellent job of making that case. Um, <clears throat> but that's not the only you know topic where there can be uh, cross sort of cross-sector learning. Um, but one point I want to make right off the bat is that ammonia energy is at a very early stage everywhere. There's no place where it is already well established. Um, the first uh, commercial, ammonia energy uh, installations are at the early stage of being built right now. So we're sort of in engineering and design rather than even construction. So it won't be till the middle years of this decade that in any sector that there's going to be um, commercial scale ammonia energy activity. Um, by the by, where it's probably going to happen first is in the Japanese electricity sector. Um, the Japanese are very keen and very active and very capable in this regard. So there's a great opportunity um, for cross-sector learning, maritime sector learning from, you know, the electricity sector, uh, for, for example. And there's even uh, opportunity for cross-sector cooperation, which we would really advocate. So, for example, um, uh, certification, certification of greenhouse gas footprint or carbon footprint. There needs to be a whole system in place for any sector to use uh, ammonia as an energy source because you're just not going to, it's just not going to work in the real world if someone says, yeah, I'm going to sell you some green ammonia, trust me. I mean, that doesn't, obviously doesn't work. Um, there needs to be, uh, uh, you know, methodologies and protocols for determining what the carbon footprint is, and then making sure that there's a, a, a chain of custody from producer to middleman to end user so that um, the amount of, of low carbon product is, is accounted for you know, completely and appropriately. That process of developing that system is at its very, very early stage, the, the, the certification system. That's at a very early stage. And so um, I can tell you that the Ammonia Energy Association, which is actually working on this and is probably the body in the world that is most active on this right now, the Ammonia Energy Association has a 
uh, low carbon certification committee. The Ammonia Energy Association also has a maritime committee. And the Ammonia Energy Association is going to make it um, a point to make sure that as appropriate that the maritime committee is talking to the low carbon certification committee and vice versa, because the low carbon certification committee can do a, you know, abstract academic type exercise could do that, but it would be a lot better if they're developing uh, systems that are driven by sort of the needs and realities of, of real users in the real world, which uh, among the very first are going to be, we believe, maritime users. So this is a, absolutely uh, just a, going to be a critical aspect of, as I say, cr cross-sector cooperation and learning. Okay, well, duly noted, and uh, we'll be we'll be tracking all of that here at Lloyd's List over the coming months and years. Uh, Stephen, Milton, I want to thank you both for the very interesting conversation, and uh, we look forward to seeing what you do next. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks so much.